Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. The, uh, the Gospel reading is from the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 22 to 40. It comes uh, early in Jesus' uh, life after the birth story, and then uh, following that when Jesus was still, uh, was still an infant. Now, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, Jesus' parents brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it's written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, <clears throat> there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now... You are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people too. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what had been, at what had been said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother, Mary, this child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There is also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband for seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, when they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that this morning the Holy Spirit would rest on us as uh, you rested on Simeon, that the Holy Spirit would rise up in us a song of praise as it was brought forth out of Anna. And we pray that this morning you would help us to hear your word so that we can help to make you known alongside these two saints. We pray that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds, that they would be acceptable in your sight. We pray in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, so here's what happened. Um, early in the week, I was uh, trying to get ready for today, and I um, didn't have my Christian Seasons calendar nearby. Um, so I, I went to the website that I usually go to to find the lectionary readings, uh, but I accidentally, because it was early in the week, I got the readings for uh, the presentation of the Lord, which happens 40 days after Christmas, which happens to have been last Wednesday. Um, and so the moral of the story is that you should all have multiple copies of the Christian Seasons calendar uh, so that you never run into this sort of problem. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, even though we're kind of going backwards now, the last couple of weeks we've been listening to Jesus preach in Nazareth, uh, in the synagogue there, and, and now we can't even speak yet. Uh, but the fact is, I, I, just, I just love Simeon and Anna. You know, I, I want to be like Simeon and Anna when I grow up. <laughs> I, and it occurred to me that there's something kind of uh, uh, really valuable uh, from these two saints uh, for us in these particular days, I think. Now, as we return to hybrid worship, I'm so glad to be here. Uh, as UBC uh, opens up uh, in-person classes, as more and more people are double-vaxxed and even boosted, and some of us are even risking making plans, I think we do well to pay attention to these old folks in the temple. You know, because they teach us a bunch of things, if we'll watch, uh, particularly um, for this morning, I think they teach us what it means to be people of hope and peace and joy which I realize is a little off-season. I know these are Advent themes, but the theologian Karl Barth says uh, that we're always in kind of an Advent, so I'm going to run with it. We're going to hang out with Simeon and Anna today because Simeon and Anna teach us what it means to be people of hope and peace and joy. And it seems to me that the world needs the church to be these things these days. Amidst a lot of other noise and nonsense, we are called to be a people of hope and peace and joy. And I don't know about you, but uh, Omicron really took the wind out of my sails. <laughs> you know, I, I, I weathered the pandemic pretty well up until that point, I think. But, you know, when we moved Christmas Eve online, that was a bummer. That really bummed me out. And then when classes went online at UBC and VST, uh, my excitement about campus ministry this term took a bit of a hit. And... And then more and more people that I know and, and got sick, some of you, my family members, uh, and basically the last little while has just been kind of a drag. <laughs> you know, I, I've muddled through, but I don't think I've been a shining beacon of hope. And so I'm glad to tag along with Simeon and Anna today because they remind us what it means to be a people of hope. And it's important to differentiate right from the start the difference between hope and optimism, right? Hope is based on something. It's rooted in something. Optimism is the sort of gut feeling that everything will be okay. 
You know, the thinker Terry Eagleton uh, wrote a book called Hope Without Optimism. <laughs> he calls himself a hopeful pessimist, which I'm not sure is something to aspire to, but I think it's kind of funny. Uh, and his point is that uh, you can be clear that things are not right, that things do not seem to be going the way they should be, and that they aren't, don't seem to be getting that way either, and still be a person of hope. Because hope isn't dependent upon our ability to see the silver linings in things. Hope is more than always looking on the bright side of life. Hope is rooted in something else, something more than our feelings that things will kind of work out. And I think Simeon in particular teaches us how to be people of hope. Luke tells us three things about Simeon. He says that he's righteous, that he's devout, and that he's looking forward to the consolation of Israel. And that's not a lot of character development, uh, frankly, but it does tell us some pretty important stuff. And, and I'm most interested in the looking forward part. We're meant to be a people who look forward. And not in a sort of trite, uh, forget the past and move on kind of way. I mean, our Jewish siblings remind us that the past is always kind of tied up in the present. Right? At Passover, they, they remind each other that God freed us, the people at the table, from slavery in Egypt. Which is obviously not literally true, but is, in a sense, profoundly true. That the past is always somehow present. And memory is a gift. Our, our memories root us in place and time. And for Jews like Simeon and Anna, and for us as Christians, memory is not just a personal thing, but it's a corporate gift. It's a thing we experience together, something that reminds us not just of where we've been, but of how God has been. Memory reminds us not just of where we've been, but of how God has been. And that's important because how God has been tells us something about how God will be. Simeon is looking forward to the consolation of Israel. Not because he can tell things that are getting better all the time. In fact, they're not. Right? And there's nothing to suggest that they will. Every time Simeon goes to the temple, he's being watched over by Roman soldiers who remind him that his people is an occupied people and that powers that have no regard for Israel's God are dictating many of the terms of his life. And this isn't a time for optimism. Surveying the facts, not much is going right in the grand scheme of things. And with Roman swords at the ready, there's no reason to think that they will be getting better anytime soon. But Simeon's looking forward, in, not in optimism, but in hope, because he knows the God he's dealing with. He's, he's righteous and devout. He got gold stars in Sabbath school. He's been paying attention to God for a long time. He knows how God has been, so he has no doubt about how God will be. This is the God who sets captives free. The God who shapes chaos into beauty. The God who will make a way when no way is possible. The God who makes streams in the desert. The God who time and again gets down in the ash heap with his people and raises them up. Simeon knows how God has been, and he knows how God will be, and so he looks forward. And I think that this is really important for the church, maybe especially so in this season. You know, as we've talked over the last almost two years now about getting back to normal or a new normal, I think our task is not to get back to what we have known or something like it. But our task is to pay attention to what God is doing, which as often as not is something new. Our task is to look forward. You know, I recently read a tweet that said that churches are dangerous when their past is more important than their future. 
Churches are dangerous when their past is more important than their future. And it's not that our past is not important. It is important. But it's important because it reminds us of how God has been so that we know how God will be. I mean, for instance, I think it's always interesting to, to remember that every single church, every church was once a church plant, <laughs> right? Every church began with a group of people who were convinced that God wanted to do a new thing in and through them, that God had something for them to do, that they had a particular responsibility to witness to the gospel in their time and place, that God was building something that required and was worth their time and energy and money. That is in the bones of every church. And it's worth remembering those seasons when God did a new thing among us, when God brought healing out of pain, or those times when God answered an outlandish prayer. Just thinking of having heard the story of you Hill praying for a Sunday school, and they got it. <laughs> We've seen some of the fruit of it already today. It's worth remembering those saints who have taught us what it means to be faithful, and I think it's important to remember those seasons when we wouldn't have made it if God wasn't faithful. But you know, the trouble is we are easily seduced by the good old days, which generally aren't actually better than the current ones on paper. You know, whether we experience them or not, we can be easily uh, convinced that there was somehow a time before that was better than this one. But the problem with that and the implication of that thought is that we don't think God is up to much anymore. For Thinking if the, the past was better, then we don't think God is up to much anymore. And the past becomes more important than the future. And to me, the real danger of that, if the past is more important than the future, then we won't plant the seeds of fruit that we might not see. We won't plant the seeds of fruit that we might see, which is part of what it means to hope. You know, part of what I love about Simeon is that hope is enough. Knowing who and how God is, is enough for him to, to be all in and to let his life bear witness. The fact is, he does not see the consolation of Israel. What he sees is a poor couple and a baby. And that's enough. Because somehow he sees in this baby that God is living and active. That God is faithful and steadfast. And that God, when God makes a promise, it's as good as done. And now you can release your servant, he says. It doesn't matter if he sees the tree because he's seen the shoot of hope in the promise of this child. It doesn't matter if he never tastes the fruit of what God is up to, to know that the tree is coming is good enough to shape his whole life. Simeon shows us that how we think, about, how we think things will end <laughs> affects the way that we live now. How we think things will be affects the way that we live now. If we think the best days are behind us, then we'll spend our days looking backwards. If we think the present is all we've got, we'll be subject to whatever is happening, tossed to and fro by whatever wave hits the shore. But if we're caught up with what God is up to, then we know that no matter how good or how bad things are, the best is yet to come. Ours is the God who still sets captives free. Ours is the God still shaping chaos into beauty. Ours is the God who still makes ways when no ways are possible. Ours is the God still filling streams in deserts, still getting down in the ash heap with his people and raising us up. And as people who have seen with Simeon the salvation that God has prepared in Christ, in the child, in his mother's arms, we know how things will be. 
In the life, death, resurrection, and reign of Jesus, we know how things end. They don't end in death and destruction. They don't end with a slow decline into oblivion. They end in resurrection. They end in resurrection. Even death isn't the end. In the wake of Easter, we know that love and life get the last word, and death will choke on its tongue. And when we know that, we can't help but shape our, let it shape our lives. We can't help but look forward to let the future invade our present and we start to plant seeds now for a future that God is going to bring to life. Maybe it's adopting a VST student. Now that's hope. Planting bulbs in the fall is hope, whether we make it through the winter or not. Or to paraphrase Dr. King, uh, a couple of days before he was martyred, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. And so we live in that. We don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future, and that's hope. And as we look forward to the day when we won't start every blessed conversation with a pandemic check-in, we're perfectly free to start planting the seeds right now for the future that we're hoping in, for the future that God is working even now, already shaping. Whatever the present holds, we get to plant the seeds of love and joy and peace because we know that that's the world that God is making even now, and that's hope. It means that we can ask ourselves, what seeds does God want to plant in us and through us now for the church that we hope that you Hill will be in 5, 10, 20 years down the road? Which leads us to the next thing that Simeon and Anna teach us, which is how to be a people of peace. And I promised I talked a little longer about hope than I'm going to talk about next to you. You know, I, I'm thinking about peace here, not as a sort of vague abstraction, but as an, as an orientation, as a lifelong orientation. Now, there are other ways to think about peace, but what strikes me about these two in the temple is that they bear witness to what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction, which is, I think, a necessarily peaceful way to be. Right? It's the conditions of peace. If we're always looking backwards, we'll end up bitter. If we want everything right now, or at least as fast as possible, we'll end up frantic and anxious. But Simeon and Anna show us what it looks like to be faithful over time. These two remind me of, of saints I've known, saints I still know, who are sort of unflappable. You know these people. Some of y'all are here today. <laughs> And then who are neither bitter about how things used to be or panicked about how they will be, partly because they've seen it all, but mostly because God has seen them through it all. You know, today I'm thinking about Mari, a, a saint I knew in Ontario who'd, who'd been widowed when her twin boy, or boys were teenagers after her husband was killed by a drunk driver. And, and I knew her decades later, decades after the fact, and she could still get teary-eyed talking about that day. But she also had the most remarkable testimony to God's faithfulness. She was a wellspring of hope. Her whole self lit up in worship. We all know people like that. We need those people. We need folks like that. Years of faith have tuned them in to the rhythms of the Spirit, attentive to her nudges. They, they have eyes to see what's in front of them, and they can tell the truth about it. This kid is going to be the cause of a lot of falling and rising, and Mary, it's going to be rough for you too. A sword will pierce your heart. And, and I can't help but imagine Simeon <laughs> saying that with a look that says, and it's going to be okay. It's going to be hard, and it's going to be okay, really. 
And Anna, for her part, shows us what it looks like to carve a life of faith over the long haul in less than ideal circumstances, widowed just out of teenagehood. She's been fasting and praying for ever since, and fasting and prayer, which are, by this point are as natural to her as breathing, are never individualistic spiritual disciplines. They both draw us out. They orient us to God and to our neighbors. They draw us into deep trust and make us risky in love, which is essential for sustaining us in, in peacemaking and peacekeeping. We need to be deep in trust and risky in love if we'll be people of peace. And of, of course, it's never too late with God. Whatever age or stage we're at, we can still learn from Anna and Simeon. But I want to say to those of us who are on the younger side of things, pay attention to these two. Right? Look at what they're able to do. Not because they're full of energy, but because they're full of faith. Not because they understand the latest fad, but because they have cultivated a life with God. A life of prayer and faithfulness. A long obedience in the same direction. They're the ones who announce God's goodness. They're the ones who can see who Jesus is even when his young parents can't. They're the ones whose eyesight might be dimming, but every sense is alive to how God is, to what God is doing, to God's startling faithfulness. Nobody else can fathom that this, this child from Nazareth, of all places, born to parents nobody ever heard of, is, now, is how God is going to save the world. But Simeon and Anna are alive to what God is doing, the God who's always making things new. And when they see it, they say it. <laughs> Actually, they, they sing it. They can't keep it to themselves. They burst into praise. They show us what it means to be people of joy. Joy is the fruit of hope and the dance partner of peace. The true joy comes from the ability to see the wonders that God has made among us, to catch glimpses of the world that we're hoping for. It's those moments when we know and sing with Julian of Norwich, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. And we know it not because everything is perfect, but because we know the God who even now is making it that way. You know, I love the way that the Bible ends <laughs> with this vision of heaven and earth made one. And we're told that uh, in this new city, a river of life flows through, nourishing the city that pulses with the energy of every tongue and tribe and nation, a city whose gates are never shut because it's never under threat. And at the center of the city is a tree of life whose fruit blooms in every season and whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. And there's no temple anymore because we are perfectly and completely intimate with God. And seated on the throne of it all is the one who has loved us from the beginning to the end and then through it. That's how the Bible ends. That's the future that's invading our present, even when it's awfully hard to see. And there are days when it's awfully hard to see. But even so, in the company of Simeon and Anna, we can trust that that's the future that's drawing us towards itself. A world that teems with hope and peace and joy and love. A world of healing and wholeness. Everything gathered up in the name and way of Jesus who is making all things new. Now, Simeon and Anna teach us how to pay attention to that new world that's coming alive in the shell of the old. 
to see it and to sing it, and to live for it now, come what may. May the same be said of us. Amen.